getting there. We, uh, we are getting in full swing at our house. You can always tell by discounting the number of times that we sit down on the couch as a family and watch the movie Elf. Um, the best way to spread Christmas cheer is loud for all to hear. Yes, yes. My kids think that is the all-time best Christmas movie ever. I'm totally cool with that. One day they will learn that Die Hard is actually the best Christmas movie. Um, but Christmas is here. Jack, Elizabeth, we're going to have a movie night one day when you get older. Die Hard. It's going to be awesome. Um, <laughs> creepy. Um, it's Christmas time. Everywhere you look, you are going to be reminded what season it is. We've got the trees, we've got the lights, the decorations, Christmas music blaring. We've got Christmas programs, 4 o'clock, 7 o'clock tonight. Um, and all the ingredients that remind us what this season is. And I love these things. I, I really do. But I often wonder and sometimes even fear that uh, all these props and the propaganda and pageants wonder if they actually distance us from what Christmas was like 2,000 years ago and separate us from that first Christmas night. You know, the first one wasn't exactly like our Christmas today. Uh, it was full of more darkness and desperation and longing than, uh, than is today. It's still present, but we tend to, to mask it with decorations and uh, ugly sweaters and uh, Christmas cards. We have some weird traditions, don't we? Ugly sweaters. Um, and Christmas cards that have this, the, you know, the, the picture-perfect family where everyone is smiling for that split second, and then we're back to reality um, that no one else ever, ever gets to see. Um, 2,000 years ago, you had a desperate world looking for hope, longing for something more than, than that they had here on earth, um, waiting and longing for, for promises to, to unfold and to come true and be realized, and, and just living in confusion as to why it hasn't happened yet. And, and into this world, on a cold, dark night, Humanity met Emmanuel for the first time, God with us, in the midst of dirt and manure and dirt and blood and bodily fluids, in a way that was full of so much shame and confusion uh, and misunderstanding. And yet there in the mess and the muck and the mire of it all, God offers us the good news of himself. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Uh, we've already read Matthew 1, but let's, uh, let's recover some ground already. Look at verse 18. Matthew 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. All right. 
This is how the birth of our Savior begins. You, uh, you've got a, a young couple who is betrothed to each other, which means for all intents and purposes, they're married. And then you have the announcement that Mary is pregnant. And Joseph, her husband, is not the father. The story doesn't start out too good, does it? All right? There, there, there's scandal that is being written about right here. And there in this scandal, we find the little baby Jesus. So here you have two kids who are betrothed together. Mary, most likely, is 12 years old, if we can go with the, the custom of the age. Joseph is more likely 18. Uh, total cradle robber here. Um, now, now, betrothal was a year-long process where two families came together and agreed that their children would be married. They'd sign a bridal contract, and for all intents and purposes, they're married, except they didn't live together. One was deemed a husband, the other was deemed a wife, and they shared all legal status of a married couple. So if one of them died, even if they had never consummated the marriage, the other would be considered a widow. If one of them cheated on the other, it would be considered adultery. They were a legally married couple. So when Mary shows up pregnant in a little town and Joseph is not the father, I mean, imagine the scandal. And Mary claims that the Holy Spirit is the one who's responsible for the child in her womb. All right, let's, let's put this in today's terms. Say you were watching the news and you hear the story of a young teenage girl from Victorville or Corona or some small town and she claims she's pregnant and yet she's a virgin, she says. What would you think? I, I'm a fireman. I, I work with crazy people all the time. What you would think is, this girl needs some help. This girl needs to talk to someone. This girl needs some sort of counseling. Uh, we're not dealing with reality here. And, I mean, listen, this happened a long time ago. We, we've progressed, haven't we, as, as a world and culture and in science and medicine? Some things don't change, okay? <laughs> biology is biology. Some things, you just, they just are. And so, to hear the word of a married girl... Jo the husband's not the father. What are you going to assume? Joseph is going to assume, Mary's been messing around on me. Mary has been misbehaving. Now, Joseph can either divorce her publicly and shame her and bring the whole shame of, of a village onto her, or he can go about it a more gentle way. And it would require only two witnesses to where he could divorce her and dismiss her as a wife. And then the shame wouldn't be so um, public. Let her, her save a little face. Now, let me give you some background that hopefully sheds light on what Joseph and this culture is thinking in terms of Messiah. 
as early as Genesis, the early chapters of Genesis, we, we encounter a promise, don't we? The promise of one who will come from the seed of a woman who will crush the head of the enemy, crush the head of the serpent. Now, it's a very general promise. But then the promise gets expanded upon in, in Genesis 12 as God comes to Abram and says, through you and in you, all the world will be blessed. And, and there's this promise of, of, of blessing and of a Messiah who will come from Abram's line. It's going to come through Abram's blood, through his family, his lineage. And, and as you read the Old Testament, we get more and more clarity on this Messiah and on this promised one. Genesis 39, it says that this ruler, this Messiah will come from the, the, the line of Judah, the tribe of Judah. 2 Samuel 7, we're told that from the line of David will come this ruler. And so the point being made is Messiah is going to come from a specific bloodline, from a specific set of offspring. Why is this important? If you're Jewish and you're anticipating the Messiah you're going to realize he's going to come through your bloodline, which means it is essential to protect that bloodline. If you intermarried, you would dilute and pollute the blood, which means from that union, Messiah would not and could not come according to the promises. And so there became this value. Man, we can't let our blood get infected we can't let it get polluted or diluted because we're, we're expecting Messiah to come from us. And, and because of this, all sorts of prohibitions and rules and boundaries were created to protect the bloodline. And now that's why you've got, you know, in the law, Old Testament law, certain prohibitions about who you can marry and who you can't, who you can have union with and who you can't. Leviticus 18 talks about many of these uh, unlawful unions, unlawful, um, you know, marriages. And if it happens, verse 29 says, for any, everyone who does any of these abominations, the person who do them shall be cut off from among their people. There's major consequences if you go down that path. If you allow your, your lineage to get polluted or diluted by marrying outsiders. And then Deuteronomy has a, f a further description. Has to do with the results of that sort of union. Deuteronomy 23.2. No one born of a forbidden union may enter the assembly of the Lord even to the 10th generation, none of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. It's important to get clear here on what the law is talking about here. Um, it's referring to someone born of a forbidden marriage, either because they've married outside or because one is already married. Now, our older translations in Deuteronomy actually call this a bastard, which somewhat misses a lot of the nuances of what it's referring to. The term was called mamzer. 
the Mamzer was a illegitimate child because either it was the product of a, of, of a union that could never be sanctioned by God, either because of race or because of status, one being already married. You can't marry someone who's already married. And so the offspring was left with this, this, this stigma, this label called Mamzer. Uh, this designation was devastating. And we saw in Deuteronomy, Mamzer could not enter into the, to the company of the Lord for 10 generations. For 10 generations, they're an outcast. They're unclean. They're not welcomed as, as part of God's people. Now, because the designation was so severe, the, the, the rabbis and the religious leaders tried to protect as many people as possible. And they said, we will use this term and designate as few people as possible. There must be two witnesses to the act of conception. If there's two witnesses, then we can't help but follow God's law and keep them as outcasts. And so if, you, if, if there were two witnesses who saw a couple who together would form one of these forbidden unions, go into a room alone and come out and later was found that the woman was with child, that would be considered as two witnesses. Now, if there were no witnesses and there was no admission of guilt, there were just questions about a person's legitimacy in their birth, they would be referred to as a doubtful mamzer. These were people who just had questionable circumstances surrounding their birth and their parents. No eyewitnesses, just uncertainty as to who the father is. Now let's look at Matthew 1 again. Birth of Jesus took place this way. When his Mary, mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, married, before they came together, she was found to be with child. Now if you're Jewish and you, you're reading this, you're, you're going to stop and pause and go, Mamzer? Jesus, a, a Mamzer? A doubtful Mamzer? Matthew's audience is a Jewish audience. Now, we read this story and go, yeah, 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 this is part of the Christmas story. We get it. We, we hear it. This is, all. no, I mean, don't clean and tidy this story up. There, there's scandal here. Whether or not it could be proven, anyone born under questionable circumstances was deemed either a mamzer or doubtful mamzer. So you understand now why Joseph is planning on divorcing Mary. Because if he steps into this marriage officially and you know, uh, and, and consummates the marriage, guess what? He loses his status as a righteous man. The text is just, in, in this translation that I have, it calls him a just man. Uh, new, uh, new American Standard, New International, call him a righteous man. He loses that status culturally and socially if he marries Mary. Now, Jesus, you might be thinking, well, where was he ever called a mamzer? Where was he labeled a mamzer? You know, because in one sense, he fits the definitions. In others, there are just so many questions. 
And it's just interesting to see what happens to Jesus through his ministry on earth. Go to Matthew, Mark 6. Mark 6. In Jesus' life, we see all sorts of insults and attacks made on Jesus that help us realize that the scandal of Christmas and the circumstances surrounding his birth have lived on. Mark 6, 1. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath day, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter? And what's it say? The son of Mary? Now, to us, that sounds like not a big deal. But in the first century, you need to know you were never referred to by your mother's name. You were either referred to by the region you came from, so Jesus would be known as Jesus of Nazareth, or you were referred to by your father's name. Jesus' name was Yeshua ben Yosef, Jesus, son of Joseph. You never referred to a person by their mother's name unless there was question as to who your father was. So to call someone Jesus, son of Mary, was an insult because you're saying, we don't know who his dad is. And so his hometown is taunting him. Where did he get all this stuff? Where did he get all this wisdom? Aren't you just a carpenter? Aren't you just Mary's son? And in ancient rabbinical sources, we have all these rabbis and teachers being quoted and referred to. Not one time is any of them referred to as the son of their mother. They're always referred to as the son of their father. Now, they're calling Jesus an illegitimate child. Go to John 8. Now, Jesus here is on the scene. He's making a bunch of just incredible claims that he's the light of the world. He's the bread of life. He's the resurrection and the life, the light of the world. And at one point, the Jews say to him, his opponent saying, you know, you claim so much, but the law requires two witnesses to what you're saying. And so Jesus says, verse 18 of chapter 8, I am the one who bears witness about myself. Okay, I'm, number, I'm witness number one. Where's the second witness? The, the father who sent me bears witness about me. Okay, what father is he referring to? Heavenly Father, right? He's referring to his Heavenly Father. How do they respond? They said to him, therefore, where is your Father? Now, why, why in the world would they come back to Jesus with, with, with this? It only makes sense if there's question as to who his Father was. And in fact, if there's any question, if, if we should take it this way, uh, look ahead to verse... 41. You know, Jews are saying they're sons of Abraham. Jesus says, no, you're actually sons of the devil, which doesn't make friends. (laughs) You got to love Jesus. Nah, you're sons of the devil. Um, Doesn't go over well. 
In verse 41, they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. So when they say to Jesus, you know, we're not born of sexual immorality, what they're implying is, you are. You're the product of sexual immorality. You're, the, you're an illegitimate child. You're, you're a mamzer, or at least a doubtful mamzer. And by the second century, it's interesting to see all the stories that have circulated around Jesus. And in Jewish sources, in, in pagan sources, we hear these stories of how Mary tried to, to hide the shame of her, the circumstances surrounding her birth, that she was actually impregnated by a Roman soldier named Panthera. Now, you only get there if you realize there's questions about the story that we've just read. That the Christmas story actually is wrapped up in a lot of scandal, in a lot of wonderment of who this Jesus is. And though we see Jesus' virgin birth as a fulfillment of all these Old Testament promises of one who will be Messiah, it's just interesting to see all the questions it raises. Isn't that Mary's boy? Where is your father? We're not illegitimate children. We're not products of sexual immorality. And think about this. You know, we, Mary and Joseph riding on a donkey to Bethlehem, right? We love this, you know, Linus telling us the story with his blanket. Now, and we hear that and we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, we love that story. Listen, G, Joseph and Mary live in a culture where the highest value is hospitality. Near Eastern hospitality is over the top. And in such an honor and shame culture, the, the, the honor you received is in direct relation to how hospitable you are. You, uh, you read Genesis 19, right? You've got Lot and um, he's living in Sodom and these two angels, these two, two visitors come and he welcomes them into his house. And the men of Sodom come to, to rape his visitors. And what does Lot do? Hey, guys, don't touch my guests, but you can have my two virgin daughters. I mean, okay, I, I'm the dad of two girls. Dude, you can have the visitors, you know? <laughs> don't touch my daughters. I, that's, you know, listen to the heart of a father, but why would you do this? Well, hospitality was such a high value. You ever seen Lone Survivor? A movie about the one Navy SEAL who, you know, everyone else gets dead and he runs away and he, he, he ends up in, in this little, uh, this village and this village of these simple people protect him against, you know, all threats and danger of, of, of the Taliban. And, oh, why would you do that? Because hospitality is unmatched. And, and you say, well, well, there was no room for them in the inn. Well, in this world, you don't have a Motel 6, you don't have holiday inns, you don't need them because of this hospitality value. They travel to Bethlehem for a census, which means Joseph has family there. Why in the world can they not find a place to stay? You would give up your own room, your own bed, you would make room for a young teenage girl who is on the verge of giving birth. It only makes sense 
if the scandal of Mary's pregnancy followed them to Bethlehem. And then to harbor such activity would almost make you an accomplice. It would make you condone her behavior and her evil actions. And so they are forced to go find shelter elsewhere to where Jesus is born outside. Can't prove that. But knowing this world and knowing the Jewish mindset, you've got to wonder the details of Jesus' birth and all the scandal that it brought. Now, what does this teach us? And I want us to see this morning how God chose to come to us. You know, why did the king of the universe, uh, uh, whose glory is unmatched, whose glory is infinite, choose to come in this way? Why, why does royalty that demands pomp and parades and palaces choose to come with, with such questionable circumstances that would leave so many stigmas and labels and make him an outcast in so many ways? That would cause two young teenagers so much embarrassment for their whole lives. Why did he come in a way that when you, you read the story, if you're part of the Jewish audience, you would step back and go, Mamzer? See, the good news of Christmas is that God drew near. That he didn't shake his head at us and say, you guys screwed it up, you fix it. But the good news goes deeper than this. It's not just that he came to save us. It's how he came. He came in the most humble, unexpected ways to be for us, Emmanuel, God with us. And in doing so, he arranges things to where every human pain and evil and suffering that we face in this world he would face. Which takes away our ability to shake our finger at God and say, you're up there, we're down here, you don't get it. Emmanuel is God's way of saying, oh, I do care. And I do understand. All the evil and suffering, all the wickedness that's done, Christmas is God's way of saying, I, I understand. He knows what it's like to be betrayed, to be abandoned, to be insulted, to be ignored, to be neglected. And all the evils that we have experienced, this Jesus has experienced it without sin. He really is Emmanuel, God with us. Not just in his three-year ministry, but since his birth. And so at Christmas, we celebrate not just a Messiah who will save us from our sins, but a, we celebrate a God who comes close to us in the pain and suffering and brokenness of our lives. Who can rightfully say, not just, I care, but who can rightfully say, I understand. I understand. 
I mean, we, we, under, we, we know the power of, of journeying in life with someone who gets it, don't we? I mean, why do you think, you know, AA has a sponsored program of someone who has been there? They don't want, they don't want certain people to be sponsors. They won't do any good because they haven't been down that road. They're going to choose people who have been there, who have been in the midst of the struggle, who say, I get it. I know how hard it is. And I've got your back. And I will support you. And they're not going to compete to see who's been sober longer, who's been clean longer, because they know it's not that kind of deal. It's a more desperate than that. One of my favorite times is, uh, is bedtime with the kids. Crawl up on a top bunk, crawl up on a bottom bunk for the boys and for the girls. And oftentimes laying on the top bunk, I'll sit with my boy Owen and I'll hear these struggles that he's experiencing as a young eight-year-old. Um, circle of trust here. He doesn't know I'm telling stories about your buddy. All right. Um, now, one of the things, my favorite things about Owen is, Jackson's little buddy, is his ears. All right, he's got daddy's ears. Um, it's fine when you're a married 40-year-old, you found your wife, you're, you're good, right? Um, when you're eight years old, and people make fun of him, it's a different deal. And he's even asked, Dad, is there a surgery they have that can fix my ears? I know. And I hear his struggle. And just what it's like to be an eight-year-old who, who is learning that life is painful and and as a father, I, I step into that. Now, I'm tempted to say, hey, buddy, listen, dude, you're smarter than them. One day they'll be working for you. Um, <laughs> you know, or, you know, he's all wiry and this, you know, little lanky muscle. I do just choke him out. You know, it <laughs> totally shows the evilness and depravity of my, my own heart. But to say things like that don't help. They don't help. What helps is when I sit with my boy and tell him I understand. I said, oh, and dude, since I was your age, I've had these nervous tics. Whenever I get stressed, whenever I get tired, I just, I get all twitchy. And when I was your age, I constantly got made fun of. I know what it's like when people just look at you weird. I know what it's like to wonder, you know, why did, why did God make me like this? I understand what it is to try to compensate. And, and buddy, I know, how to, I know how to compensate right and I know how to compensate wrong. What helps is to tell him, I understand. What helps is to tell my boy, listen, this, this is what, an area where I've gotten to meet God. And these are questions, I, I don't know why God has made us the way he does. But I do know that he delights in what he's made. What helps my son is being able to tell him, yes, that I care, but also that I understand. 
And Christmas for us is Emmanuel. It's God with us. Who, a God who comes not just in the flesh, but arranges for himself to come in a way that is so wrapped up with questionable circumstances and labels and stigmas in order to undergo all the evils and injustices and pain that we do so that he can rightfully say, I am Emmanuel. I am God with you. I understand. And this is a message that is desperately needed today. Last week, I, uh, I was having coffee with Kenny. And we were just catching up and talking about life. And he was, he was asking about work and just asking how I deal with all the tragedies that you see as a fireman. And I said, you know, it's, it's kind of sad, but you just get used to it. I said, the only things I don't get used to are incidents involving children and suicides. Suicides are so dark and depressing slash demonic that they never, I've never gotten used to those. Well, the next day I'm at work and... Um, we get a call for some unknown medical and we show up and we're standing outside this high-end apartment and we hear something going on inside and the person who called is there and they said, we uh, said, my friend, I came to check on her. She wasn't sounding right on the phone and she opened the door and she's all bloody and she slammed the door and locked herself in. I don't know what's going on, but she needs some help. And so the man, we waited for the manager to come and unlock the door so we didn't need to force entry and bust the door. And I crack the door open and just peek in. I mean, I, I've been attacked by psycho chicks, you know, who just, you just, you get a little, you know, twitchy, uh, which don't help my twitchiness. Um, and, 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 I, and I peer in and there's just one light that's really dim. And so I can't make out everything, but the whole place is destroyed. Big glass dining room table shattered. Everything just, I mean, glass, trash, just, I mean, thing is destroyed. And as you walk in, you walk into a kitchen with a normal standard eight-foot ceiling, and then the, the apartment opens up. There's a loft upstairs and just opens up wide. And I'm just trying to make it on the light, and I see two feet at the ceiling line, just dangling and barely swinging. And we had just heard someone in that apartment. I mean, it looked like a, a not scary farm prop. And you just don't get used to those things. And normally they're dead, but we had just heard her. And so we, I ran up the stairs, me and the other guy who was on the truck with me, and reached down and pulled this gal up and cut the rope off from her neck. And we're sitting there and just doing what we can, you know, checking pulse, respirations, and all. And seconds later, through this collapsed trachea, she just starts snoring. And I kid you not, minutes later, I'm staring this beautiful woman in the face, talking to her. And I'm saying, why? Turned out she was some soap opera star and, you know, the fame, the money, the good looks, everything that comes with that lifestyle that you, you know, think people would just clamor for wasn't enough. 
And I'm sitting here and I've been studying. What is it like for Jesus to be an outcast, a mamzer? What is it like to have a stigma? What is it to be Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us? And I'm just looking at this woman saying, what she needs to hear is Emmanuel. What she needs is the message of God with us. You, you don't have to go to those extremes. And while we're talking, she's taking the rope and trying to put it back over her neck. And I'm getting ticked at her. No! We have a world that is in desperate need to hear the message, the true message of Emmanuel, of God with us. You know, why was it that so many misfits and outcasts just flocked to Jesus? Was it, was it because they, they saw a Savior that they could relate to? Was it that they saw a God who actually, they believed, understood what it is to be marginalized, to be outcast, to be set on the fringes of society? They saw a God who became flesh. As Philippians 2 says, not counting equality with God a thing to be grasped, though he could have, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. And what did that servant look like? He came in the least expected way. If anyone deserved glory or parades or palaces, it was Jesus. And yet the way he shows up in our world, the way he shows up on the scene, and this unexpected scandal of a mamzer. And so where do we get to meet Jesus this Christmas? We meet him in the brokenness and the pain of life. We get to meet him in our grief and our despair. We get to meet him in our sorrow and move towards him and have him move towards us and hear him say not just I care, but we get to hear him say I understand. I am Emmanuel. I am God with us. And so instead of pointing our fingers at God and saying, you don't get it, you don't understand, we're able to fall down and worship because of the way he came. Emmanuel, God with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as your people, we thank you for sending your son Jesus to truly come, become Emmanuel, to truly be God with us, a God who cares and a God who understands because of the way that you came, Jesus, and the life that you lived, Jesus. And so this Christmas, this day, this season, this week, Lord, would we, would we find you in the places of longing, in the places of grief, in the places of sorrow? Would we find you all around as we look to you and look for a God who gets it? And we thank you for this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.